Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. When you have found Acts chapter 5, would you be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning in Acts chapter 5. So Acts chapter 5, starting in verse number 1, it reads like this. But a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Father, this morning, we're about to tackle a passage that's been so misunderstood and mispreached from your pulpit. So I ask this of you this morning. Today, you wrap my mind with your mind. You Take control of my body and my voice, and you speak, that we may hear your word this morning, Father, and leave this place a purified church. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we ended chapter 4 last week, we saw the persecution of the church from without. The gospel message of Jesus Christ was being preached to the people, Peter and John. They had been arrested by the Sanhedrin. Uh, they were brought before those Sanhedrin and told that they could no longer speak the name of Jesus. They decided it was best to follow the direction of God, not the direction of men. So they left there and they went to the fellowship of the church together and they recounted their story to the church. And the church prayed and praised God and they were unified because of this outward attack by Satan against the church through the leadership of that church. Satan's attack on the leaders of the church had caused the church to actually unify together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says that they were so unified in the fourth chapter, verse 32, it says they were of one heart and one soul. And it also says, and neither did anyone say that any of the things that they possessed was his own. Then it went on to give us the example of Joseph in verse 36 and 37. And all the church had been blessed by this unity. So much that Joseph, that got this nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
Barnabas did not sell all that he had and and bring it to the apostles for his glory, but the church recognized his his faithfulness to God as an encouragement to the church and that that his faithfulness to God was, was glory to God. See, Satan's attack on the church from without had failed. His attack had failed. The the persecution had actually made that church stronger and more unified. Then we come to chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins with Satan's next attempt to stop what was happening in this church. Satan's been losing the battle. Uh, He had worked and and contrived with the the leadership to kill this Jesus. He He had thought that he had had accomplished that task where Jesus died on the cross and was placed inside of the tomb. But then Sunday came. Then Sunday came and Jesus rose from the dead. And Satan realized his plan had not worked. He says that Jesus returned to those that that had followed him, if you remember at the beginning of Acts. And he said, you just wait. You just wait right here. The Holy Spirit is going to come and empower you. And then you are to continue that which I started. When that Holy Spirit came, if you remember, about 120 believed and were filled. From that point, Peter went out and he preached his first sermon, and there were some 3,000 that came to believe. Then as he stood later in the, uh, the portico after the healing of the lame man, Peter preached again, and it says some 5,000 men were saved. You see, Satan was losing Satan was losing, and Satan is not happy when he loses. He started his attack on the church by by persecuting its leadership. And his attack in those days is the same way he attacks the church today. Look at the men of God that stood in the pulpit that have fallen because of sin in their life just recently. Just recently. Satan's attacking those men in the pulpit, knowing by attacking the head you affect the body. You see, in... That attack that he did on the first church, going after the head, Peter and John, going after them had failed. And it had failed miserably. As a matter of fact, it failed so much that it had the opposite effect of what Satan desired. He desired for the church to fall apart, but the attack unified the church. And now Satan's going to take a different approach. Satan knows the heart of man. Satan knows the heart of man. We see it all the way back in the book of Genesis when he knows that the heart of man is to glorify himself, to have some pride in himself. (laughs) That's how Satan attacked Adam and Eve. Oh, did God really say that? Oh, he doesn't want you to eat from the tree because then you'll be like him. No, Satan knows our heart. Satan knows that we desire to be bigger than we really are. He wanted Adam and Eve to have pride in themselves. He appealed to their desire to be God in their own life. And here in chapter 5, we see him attacking the church again in the exact same way. The exact same way with sin from within. Sin from within the body. How did he do that? First, he did it through spiritual pretense. Spiritual pretense. Look at verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. They took it upon themselves to sell a possession of land that they owned. They had seen this response to Barnabas 
and his giving. How his, how his name had even been changed to son of encouragement. They had, they had heard the praise that the church had given to this Barnabas for, for doing what he did and selling his possessions and bringing things. And, and they wanted in. They wanted in on the glory. They wanted in on the praise for what was, was being done. It's, it's not certain. It, it doesn't tell us if, if they were true believers in Christ. But there's one thing that, that is certain. They were a part of that church. They were a part of that church. And they were present with all the others, as it says in the, in the 31st verse of chapter 4, when it says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And without any other word being given as to their spiritual condition, I would have to assume that they were believers. See, the Holy Spirit only fills those who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit fills no one else. So if they were part of that church and were filled with the Holy Spirit, I have to assume that they were true believers. But even a Spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ can be a spiritual poser. I hope you understand that. Even one who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can be putting on a pretty face on Sunday morning. You see, we can all be hypocrites. It's often said by people that don't come to church, well, why would I go there? It's full of hypocrites, and in some sense, they're telling the truth. I always like to look at them and say, hey, man, you ought to come on. we got room for one more. But you know, sometimes the church is full of hypocrites. You know, you can walk the walk, you can talk the talk, you can sit in a church pew every Sunday morning, and at the end of the day, the gospel that you depended so much on for your salvation is not even evident in the life that you live. You know what you call that? Hypocrite. It's a hypocrite. A person who says they'll cling to salvation through Jesus Christ, but they go out in the world and live like the world? Hypocrite. It'd be nice if everybody who was a hypocrite wore a t-shirt. We'd be able to figure it out then, wouldn't we? Or they had a hat with it on it. <laughs> but you see, Ananias and Sapphira were just that. <laughs> Barnabas had given of his possessions, not for his glory. <laughs> he had given of from a compassionate heart. And that compassionate heart had been changed by this Jesus, the gospel message of, the, of Jesus. And he did what he did in the, in the giving of all that he had from direction of the Holy Spirit that others might be blessed. And, and my friend, that's for the glory of God. None of it was for his glory. Ananias and Sapphira had apparently no compassion for others. They had no compassion for others. The only compassion they had was for how they would be seen for giving of this sacrifice of themselves for God. They pretended to be heavenly minded when in fact they were self-minded. You see their pretense in selling their possessions and giving it to the apostles was so that they could be seen as having done something for God and, and that they could gain the glory. They could get the same praise that this Barnabas had gotten. And, and maybe their name would be changed, which I find interesting. It just happened to hit me. I believe Ananias' name actually means grace of God. Interesting. Interesting. See, we must be careful. We, we must be careful about what we do for God and who gains the glory for it. See, we must always ask this question. Am I doing this to be seen by man? Or am I doing this for the glory of God who loved me with his life, the life of his only begotten son? See, 
secret sins on earth are open sins in heaven. And hypocrisy is often a sin that no one sees but God. God knows your heart. God knows your heart and he desires that your heart be filled with compassion. Compassion for those he has a heart of compassion for. Those that need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I am so glad. I am so glad that there was someone in my life who had a compassionate heart for the lost and would spend untold hours on their knees praying for me. I am so glad there were Sunday school teachers that had a compassion for young people to hear the gospel. And they spent untold hours preparing to tell my little heart about Jesus. I am so glad there have been men of God that have stood in a pulpit after wrestling all week long with the message God would have them bring and proclaimed it so clearly with compassion that it spoke to my heart. You see, those people that walked in my life that shared that gospel message had the compassion that God has for those who don't know His Son, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you bring glory to God, the Bible says. Just the the act, just the fact that you come into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ brings God the glory. Why? Because God is the author of and the finisher of our faith. Not man. God is the author and the finisher of our faith. And when the church unifies around that gospel message, guess what happens? It brings glory to God. 1 Peter Peter 4, verse 11 says, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And it ends, amen. You see, everything that we do needs to be done for one reason. That the gospel message may glorify God in the lives of those we do it to and for. You see, all of our possessions, everything that we have are a gift from God. Whether it be our personal things, whether it be our health, whether it be our gifts and our talents. All of those things belong to God. He has given us all those things. And God calls us to use those possessions for the spreading of the name of Jesus. It says that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. All things. The Bible even says in the way that you eat and drink, in the way that you communicate, in the way that you walk and talk, in in all things. So first there was the spiritual pretense. They, They tried to seem more godly than they really were when the God that they desired to be seen was themselves. The second thing that happened there was there was this spiritual perception this spiritual perception as i read the story of ananias and sapphira this morning (laughs) i know a thought came through most of your minds (laughs) is the bible saying that we have to sell everything that we own and give it to the church you'd be surprised you'd be surprised the number of messages i looked up this week that that's about what they preached about this passage but there's a simple answer to that the simple answer is no 
doesn't say. You, you can't lay that scripture next to anything else in the Word and says it, it says that you're supposed to be flat broke and everything you own is owned by the church. I think there is a denomination or two that go that way. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says about it. So guess what? You can take your pocketbook out from in your boot and put it back inside of your pants. This is not a tithing message this morning. This is not a message to get you at the end of the service to come up and put money in a plate. That's not the message. So relax. Breathe easy. The pastor's not after your money this morning. You see, the Bible, the, the point of this story is not about the possession. See, it's not at all. We become so ingrained with this ideology that, that we have to get all that we can get while the getting's good that we can't look past that word possessions. We're so wrapped up in, in gaining things on this earth that we can't even look past it when it's read to us out of the Bible. We're so locked in that we've got to get the hay in while the sun's still shining that we can't move past the fact it said something about our possessions. We spend the bulk of our time trying to make money so that we can live better tomorrow. And guess what happens? For most of us, tomorrow never comes. We spend all of our life trying to have a good tomorrow, and tomorrow never shows up. We can never get enough. Maybe that's why the Bible says the root of all evil is what? Money. But the message this morning isn't about your money. It's not about your money at all. See, we wind up being so earthly minded about the things that we can gain that we wind up being no heavenly good whatsoever. See, the story isn't about whether they sold their possessions or they kept their possessions. It's not about how much money they made on the sale and how much they, they gave to the church. It isn't even about abiding by some rule or some law. I hear discussions all the time. Does it really say in the Bible in the New Testament you're supposed to give 10% on Sunday morning? No, it says you're supposed to give what God tells you to give. And if you're listening to God, 10% ain't even a starting point. Because God says that if you'll give from a cheerful heart that everything you ever need, He will supply. So set a rule. Set 10%. Hey, great idea. No, that's not the law of the New Testament. Jesus Christ came to do away with the law. And if you really want to hold to the law, if you say, hey, that is the law, then do the 10% as the Jewish people did. They even counted out the grains of seed that they had that they were going to plant and gave 10% of those. How many have done that lately? Discussion I often get in when someone decides they're going to start tithing is the 10% of the grosser the net. Makes me want to throw up. It's like saying, okay, God, if I give on the big number, you ain't going to be able to. If I give on a little number, you'll probably show up. Big number, no, stupid. See, this whole message isn't about this, this money or how much they give. It's about trying to look more godly than they are and, and lying to God. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of what the price of the land is for yourself? See, it wasn't about the selling. It wasn't about how much it sold for. It was about the lie. It was about the lie. Peter didn't question the fact that they had chosen to keep from some of the proceeds for themselves. He wanted to know, why have you allowed Satan to lead you to lie to the Holy Spirit? See, we know that because in verse 4 it says, 
while it remained. Was it not yours? He says, in other words, didn't you own it? Wasn't it yours to decide whether or not you were going to sell it? He said, Ananias, did, did anyone come up to you and say it's required that you sell that piece of land and give it to the church? He said that land was yours. He even goes on to say, after that in verse 4, he says, and after it was sold, was it not in your own control? He says, Ananias, what you sold it for is your business. He said, what, wasn't it yours? In other words, the money from the sale, wasn't that money yours, Ananias? Then he hits the home run. Then he hits the bullseye. He says, the land was yours. The money from it was yours. He goes on and says in verse 4, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? What's the the, this thing? Was the this thing the selling of the land? Mm -mm. Was the this thing to only give part of it to the church? Mm -mm. You know what the this thing was? Connects directly to what he had said to him there in verse 3. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? See, that this thing is the lie. It's the sin. That this thing is the sin. You see, he hits the bullseye. He wants to know what, what drove you to decide you could keep some of the sale, but say that you were giving it all to God. What, what, what was your motive behind this, Ananias? You know what? That's what God wants to know from you and me today. It's exactly what He wants to know about us, both individually and as a church. What's your motive in serving Him? What's your motive in teaching Sunday school? What's your motive in standing on a stage and singing? What's your motive in putting money in that plate when it passes? What's my motive? What's my motive to stand in a pulpit and preach? What is, what is our motive? What, what, if what is your motive in using or choosing not to use that, that which God has blessed you with? And it doesn't matter how you answer that question to me. It doesn't matter how you tell the person sitting in the, the pew next to you. It, it doesn't matter what excuse you use as to why you can or, or what would keep you from doing or your, your inability to do it. No, none of those things matter. It, it doesn't matter at all. It, it doesn't matter even the magnitude of your generosity. If you did sell everything and give it, none, none of that matters. If the motive's not correct. You see, that's what he says there at the end of verse 4. When he says, you know what? You've not lied to men. Ananias, you've told the church that you've sold a great big piece of property and you're bringing everything to God so the church can use it. And it, Ananias, what you don't understand is you didn't lie to us. It says you didn't lie to men, but to God. See, God knows your motive. God knows the intent of your heart. And God does not judge on what you do or what you don't do with this worldly standard. No, God judges the intents of your heart with His own standard. As a matter of fact, back in 1 Peter, back in 1 Peter at the very uh, beginning chapter of 1 Peter in the 13th verse, He says this, 
Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he starts off talking about this grace that God has showed us through his son Jesus Christ. And how many of you know that grace, that grace is everything? It's God's redemption at Christ's expense. It's God giving of his most precious on our behalf. And he says, there's his grace. It goes on to say, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In what? In all your conduct. Because it is written. And he reaches back into the Old Testament, pulls out a verse, and he says this. Be holy, for I am holy. You see, when God looks at you, it's not about how much you dump in that plate when it passes. It's not about how much time you give in his service to the church. It's about whether you're doing it from a place of holiness and a desire to be holy as God is holy. That's the standard. Anything short of holiness requires repentance on our behalf because it is sin. It is sin. There's a worldview and there's a biblical view of everything. And God desires that we have this biblical worldview of all things. There will be those today that say, you know what, Pastor, this whole Acts chapter 5 thing with the selling of all things and distributed others, that was a particular thing for a particular time because of the beginning of the church. And, and they would say, God would never intend for us to sell everything that we have and, and use it for the spread of the gospel. You know, and truthfully, truthfully, there are many today God will never call to give everything. There are many God never calls to give everything. But, but you know what I do know? He's called each of us to give something. He's called each of us to give something. Most of us won't give the something in fear. God's going to ask for the everything. We keep the something tucked away in our pocket or our minds or put away to the side. In fear that to give a little is going to require a lot. <laughs> Let that sink in. What God wants from us is obedience. What God wants from us is obedience to Him that our lives might be glorifying, glorifying to Him. And be glorified Him by the proclamation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ through our lives. Through the things that He gives us. Through the blessings that He pours out upon us. And obedience to God starts, it starts with the desire to be holy as God is holy. Boy, that's a high standard. I just got chills thinking about it. How holy is God? And he says that we are to be holy as he is holy. And that will change your perception of everything in this world. You will look at your possessions differently. You'll look at your life differently. You'll look at your family differently. You'll look at your neighbor, your coworker, the, the stranger you bump into on the street. You look at all of them very differently. See, you will see them not as humans. You will see them not as just a living, breathing person, but you'll see them as a soul. A soul that needs a Savior.
And that Savior's name is Jesus. The haughty eye I mentioned to the kids this morning. There will be no more haughty eyes. You won't look down on someone because of their race, because of their economic status, because of the country they live in, because of even their belief system. You'll look on them, even if they believe that there is no God. And you'll see them with compassion because you realize they need your Jesus. You see, when you look at the world through the lens of the Bible, it changes your perspective. You will gain a heart. You will gain a heart. Like it says in Matthew 9, I believe it is, when it says that Jesus looked out on the multitude and he had compassion because he saw them as sheep with no shepherd. He saw them as wandering around aimlessly with no one to lead. You will have a heart filled with compassion and when you see the other countries, the nations, your neighbors, your neighborhoods, you will see it as a field white unto harvest. And you will pray to God, send the harvester. Knowing that when you pray that prayer, chances are you better get your picking basket out because you just became the harvester. See, when you look at the world through the lens of the Bible, you look at the world like God looks at the world. And you get this heart like Jesus. A heart that is like Jesus loves the things that God loves and hates the thing that God hates. You heard me tell the children this morning, God does hate something. And in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, we see what God hates inside the church. And it's sin. God hates sin. And especially when it's in the body. See, first there was a spiritual pretense. Second, there was a spiritual perception. And third, there was a swift punishment. <laughs> this is where people perk up. <laughs> you see, in verse 5 it says, And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. I don't know any way to spiritualize that verse to make it mean anything other than Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And it says that the pronouncement of his sin against God by lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias dropped dead. It doesn't say what physical condition killed him. It doesn't say if it was a heart attack, maybe he had the flu, maybe he choked on a piece of candy he was chewing when it was brought to his attention what he had done. But ultimately, at the end of the day, because God is sovereign, he died because God judged the sin in his life. He dropped dead. D-E-A-D, -E dead. God is so serious about the church, the body of Christ, that he instantly judged the sin of Ananias, and he died. How do we know he died? Look at verse 6. It says the young men arose. They came in. They wrapped him up. They carried him out, and they buried him. He died. He didn't just have a fainting spell. You you only bury dead people. And they took him out and buried him. And notice the effect it says in verse 5 of the church. So great fear. Great fear come upon all those who heard these things. Whew. The understatement of the century. 
the understatement of the century. The presence of God's judgment caused a great fear to fall on those who heard. And as if that wasn't enough, look at verse 7. As if that wasn't enough, in verse 7 it says, Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. As if it wasn't enough that Ananias was called out before the church for lying to the Holy Spirit and dropped dead in the presence, here walks his wife in. Here walks his wife, and it was three hours later, which is kind of interesting. Side note, notice the service was still going on three hours later. The next time you tell me I preach too long. And here she comes for her piece of the glory in the giving of this money from the land. Probably took her three hours because she wanted to be really good looking and dolled up for this occasion. She wanted to make sure she had a grand entrance. She wanted to make sure that everybody saw the woman who gave everything to the church. She strolls up in the middle of the service three hours late. And it says in verse 8 that Peter says this to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. What's the so much? More than likely it's what Ananias had said that they had sold it for and that he was bringing to the church. So he questions her. Is this how much that that you sold the land for? He immediately confronts her hypocrisy. Notice what she says in verse 8. She says, yes, 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 yes. For so much. That's exactly, Peter, how much we sold it for. Aren't you glad we brought it to the church? And look at what Peter says to her in verse number 9. How is it that you've agreed together to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Who had she agreed together with? Ananias, her husband. She agreed to lie to the Holy Spirit to test him. And he says, look. He says, look. The feet of those who have buried your husband, they're at the door. They're about to carry you out. (laughs) Know about you? I just got to chill. The perception of what was going on by the Spirit led to this swift punishment And he he says there in verse 9, he states the facts. He says, you, Sapphira, which her name actually means Sapphire, which is beautiful. She wanted to be beautiful in all things. He says, he says, beautiful. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Number one. Number two, you're getting ready to die. What if the next time you got ready to do something for God and you did it for your own glory, that the man of God said, you've lied to God, the hearse is backing up to the door. Mm. Wow. Verse 10 says, and immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And it says the young men, they came in, they found her dead, and carrying her out, they buried her right next to her husband. I'm no expert on how to grow a church. Haven't had any courses on the best policies and procedures to grow a church, but I do know one thing. If people start dying during offering time because they're lying to God, there's going to be a tough time getting people to sign up. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Wouldn't you agree? But doesn't that tell you how serious God is about the purity of the church? He would sacrifice numbers for purity any day. And I'm having to learn to do the same thing. I'm having to learn that it's not about how many. It's about how pure the few are. 
You see, God can do way more with one or two than I could ever do with a million. And God is so serious. God is so serious about this sin that he understood that left unchecked in the life of a church, it will cause the church to die. That's why there's direction given in the Bible on how we're to deal with sin in the church. How, how we're to go to that person that is sinning and, and bring it before their attention that they're sinning one-on-one. We're to go with that person that I've recognized as sin in your life and you need to deal with this sin in your life. You're to do it as brother and sister, iron sharpening iron to that person and that person alone. You know what that means? It's not to your neighbor sitting in the pew next to you. It's not over the phone to someone else. It's not coming to the pastor saying, we need to pray for this person who's sin. No, you need to get out of your pew and you need to go look the person in the eye and said, if you believe in the same Jesus I believe in, you need that sin out of your life. The problem with purity not being in the church today is the saints of God are scared to death to address sin in their own life. Therefore, they won't address it in anyone else's life. See, if you're living as a hypocrite, you don't have the nerve to go tell someone else about their sin. That's the fact of the matter. See, it says we're to do that if, if that person refuses. It says that is not a sin. I don't need to change that. You're to go back with a couple of witnesses, not a posse to tell the person what's wrong. Witnesses, which means a witness, watches. You again address that person. If they still refuse, what are you to do next? You're to bring that person before the body of Christ. You're to reveal that sin publicly to the church. The person refuses refuses for that sin to be out of their life, so therefore out of the church, that person is dismissed. That's what the Bible says. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> When's the last time you've seen that done? <laughs> yeah. Deep breath. Let me ask you another question. Is there still sin in the church? <laughs> Puts a whole new light on it now, doesn't it? Maybe that's why we're not willing to do what God's called us to do for the purity of the church. God's design for the church is that it be holy as he is holy. Anything less than the holiness of God demonstrated inside of a church is sin. Corporately against an almighty God. God dealt with the sin in the first church by bringing immediate to death. And what was the outcome? The fourth thing, very quickly, the outcome was a sinful purge. If there's one thing we could take away from this story of the first church is that God is serious about the body of Christ being a representation of Him in the world. Church to God is, is not a game. It is not something you do on Sunday. It's not a club. It, it is the body of His Son, Jesus Christ, in this world. And God desires for no sin to be in the body of His Son in this world. Jesus told this parable in closing in Matthew 13. If you remember anything about Matthew 13, very quickly, it's it's parable about the, the souls is how it starts off, where Jesus made it clear that, that it's our job to cast the gospel message into the soul of the world, that, that some will receive it and some would not, that, that some would grow and some would wither, that, that some would take root and some would be snatched up. He says there are different kinds of soil. It's our responsibility to share the gospel, not grow the crop. We're to share that gospel. The Holy Spirit sends someone to water that gospel, and it, it grows at God's direction. But, but we're to go out and share that. And immediately following that, he goes into a parable about verse 24, about the wheat and the tares. What an interesting parable. He tells a story about the, the wheat and the tares, how the kingdom of God, this kingdom of, of heaven, was like a man who, who sowed the seed. 
He sowed the seed in the field. And, and while he slept at night, the enemy came in. The enemy came in and sowed among that good seed the tares, the, the weeds. He, he threw these weeds amongst the wheat. And those two things started growing up side by side. And, and if you remember the story, the servants came and said, Master, Master, we have a problem. We have a problem. Not only is there wheat coming up in the field, but we have these weeds, these tares that are, that are growing up right next to it. Do, do you want us to go pull out those tares? The master says, no, no, for the sake of the good seed, let them both grow to maturity. Let them both grow to maturity so as not to pull up the good seed when you remove those tares. And he says, at the time of harvest, we'll separate those things. We'll separate those wheat and those tares. He says, those tares will be burnt and the wheat will be brought into the barn. You know, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the church. You see, not everything that's growing in the church is good seed. It's just not. He says there's, there's some things that are growing up in the church that are tares. And even though it's not separated as it grows, there will come a time when the tares will be burnt and the wheat will be brought into the barn. Doesn't take much imagination to understand what he means by that. It means your name on a church roll, your seat in a pew, your place leading a Sunday school class will not put you in the barn if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if your goal is to not be holy as God is holy. Anything short of that puts you in the terror category. No matter how many times you've been baptized. No matter how many church roles your name's been on, no matter how many Sunday school classes you've taught, no matter how many times you've stood in the pulpit and preached the gospel, the goal doesn't change. The bar is still set. Do you know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? And is that causing you to desire to be holy as God is holy? Anything short, regardless of your position in the church, places you in a terror category. And it says at the end, <laughs> the terrors will be burnt. God knows which is wheat. God knows which is tear. And it's only by His grace that the tares haven't fallen dead today. It's only by God's grace. He has patience that we do not understand. His desire, His desire, His hope is that the gospel message will change the heart of the tear into a heart that is not of stone but is of flesh. A heart that knows Jesus Christ as its Lord and Savior. A heart that desires to be holy because God is holy. Thereby, the sin is purged from the church when the tares become wheat. And that starts by a truthful examination of where you stand with God. What really needs to happen in the church today is a truthful examination of where we each stand with God and where the church corporately stands with God. Have you ever accepted, really, truly know that you've accepted the free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ to pay your penalty for sin? Or are you trying to give your way out of your sin problem? Are you trying to work your way out of your sin problem? Are you trying to membership your way out of a sin problem? Or do you really know, really know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if today God said all of those who don't have a heart for Jesus who don't have the right motive, today is the day that the feet are at the door. Does that bring chills to you? 
Or does that let you know that there is a God who judges sin and I'm not going to be judged because my sin has been placed on Jesus Christ on the cross? And I've accepted the free gift of his forgiveness and my heart forever has been changed. Is there a time in your life that you know for certain that Jesus Christ became Lord of your life? Maybe today you need to trust him for the very first time. No matter how long you've sat in a church, no matter how many roles your name's been on, no matter how many times you've been baptized, in case you didn't get it from the message today, God's serious about sin. He's so serious that he desires for you to come humbly, no matter what anyone else thinks. Come and receive that gift. If he is the Lord of your life, is there a time that you've professed him publicly? Some have made decisions for Jesus Christ, but they've never stood up before anyone and said, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Maybe today. Maybe today you want to stand boldly before this congregation and say, yes, Jesus is the Lord of my life. I want to be, be a part of this fellowship of this church because the Bible says for those who publicly profess Jesus, guess what he does to the Father? He speaks your name. He speaks your name. Are, are you a secret believer today? Hey, if so, maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day that you want to change that. Jesus desires that you be saved. Jesus desires that you live in such a manner that others come to know Him as their Lord and Savior. Maybe today, maybe today you know for beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a home in heaven because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know that you try to the very best of your ability to live that out in the world so that others will come to know. You try to the best of your ability to have compassion for those around you. But maybe today, you need to let go of something. Maybe today there's something in your life you need to let go of. Maybe there's something that God's given you you need to pick up so that you can use that for the glory of God. Maybe today we need to stop trying to do what's best for us and our future and do what's best for God so that He holds your future. You know, maybe... Maybe you need to bring the gifts and talents that God has given you to the altar today and say, God, I lay these here asking you to bless them that I may leave this altar being a blessing to you and a blessing to those around me in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.